Hey everyone, in the coming months, we're going to switch out some of our interstitial music and feature our good friend James Byer and his wonderful snare drums, Byer Snares. We're going to have a feature snare drum of the week with a good friend, Mark Beckett, and former guest, and we'll tell you what the snare drum is and how it sounds, and in one or two of the breaks during the episode, you'll hear a real example of the Bayer snare drum in action. We'll let you know who the drummer is and which snare drum they're using. We'll also include links to the performances in the show notes. And of course, we'll include a link to the website where you can find out more information about the Bayer snare drum. This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Alan Jones. Alan's been the drummer for Americana singer songwriter Will Hogue for some time now. Just before Will put out his 2018 record, My American Dream. Alan joined the band touring in support of his previous record, and then Alan was asked to be a part of that 2018 record, as well as a brand new record that just came out in 2020, Tiny Little Movies. Alan grew up in southern Mississippi, where he discovered his love of music and drumming. Before his move to Nashville in 2010, Alan spent a lot of time on the road doing some DYI touring with different indie artists. During his time in Nashville, Alan has found his people, and along with Will Hogue, he's worked with and recorded with such artists like Lily Hyatt, among others. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. One thing that we'd like to do is show our gratitude to some of our Patreon members. We've got some recent members that have just joined us, Jimmy Allison, Rick Jones. Uh, We've got Dean Cook, Nikeo Wallace, and Michael Collins. They've all joined within the last uh, few months or six months. Uh, Sean Newman, Matt Waddell, Dave Nanke, or Nink, Jonathan Hawk, Scott Nosworthy, Isaac Sanchez, James Osborne, and Matt Middleton. We appreciate all of you supporting the podcast. If Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. I'm excited to share this episode with y'all. Alan has been someone I've gotten to know a little bit over the last couple years. He's been a big supporter of the podcast. We really appreciate that. But Alan's story is uh, a little unique compared to a lot of our guests we've had recently. He's uh, less of a hired gun type drummer that I think a lot of us can relate to. Alan's focus most of his life has been about being a part of a band, being part of a project and involving himself with the artist and the songwriting. And uh, I know there's a lot of listeners out there that can really relate to that. So hope you enjoy this conversation with Alan Jones. I don't really know how I ended up being drawn to the drums because I didn't know anyone that played drums. No one in my family did. I just, through my older brother, like that was kind of my introduction to to music, Um my brother's seven years older. And so, you know, things that he like music that he was really getting into as like a early teenager, uh, I was getting, I was being exposed to that 
at the same time, but yeah. being, you know, like seven or eight years old. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know what it was, but, uh, yeah, I started, I mean, it's really a, probably around the same time. Um, but I just, for whatever reason, even though I was learning things on the guitar and, and eventually on bass as well, I just always thought of myself as a drummer. Yeah. Do you feel like knowing to play bass and guitar helps you now in, cause man, I, I, I was texting you yesterday. I've been listening, um, just to the last couple Will records this week and just really enjoying the playing. And I'm like, okay, I want to make sure that this is Alan. <laughs> this is, I'm really digging this and I'm thinking that's, that's Alan on drums. And I'm like, let me just make sure, you know, this is Nashville, but I mean, it's, it's different. Not only just the feel and the energy uh, and the variety of music that's being played on these records, but the parts that you come up with. And I want to talk more about these records, but for right now, I kind of want to stick with your interest and knowledge of guitar and bass and like other instruments. And did that, do you feel like that really helps you as a drummer come up with parts that work well with these songs? Yeah, I do. I think it's, um, it's not necessarily always a conscious thing. I think it just sort of, that's just kind of a part of my instincts because I'm, I'm completely self-taught on all of them. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously like my dad, when I was a kid showed me how to play chords, you know, and then I kind of benefited from as my brother was learning guitar, you know, I could just kind of learn, kind of learn it right along with him or pick up things that he was doing um, but I, you know, I, I don't have any, uh, any sort of formal music education. It was all just playing by ear, playing along the records, mm -hmm. you know, CDs, like all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that plays a part of it. Um, I, uh, another friend of mine whose records I've played on pointed out something to me as we were. One time we were doing some rehearsals, getting ready to record an album for him. And he made the comment that, uh, that my drumming somehow always lines up with the strumming hand on guitar for him. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it, I, I guess it makes, you know, I guess that makes sense. Um, but it's, uh, like I said, I, I think it is just an instinctual, like subconscious thing. Yeah. It, it's so funny. A, a friend of mine who runs a studio on the east side, I was in his studio and he goes, hey man, check this out. And he played a track for me. I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. It was like a 6-8 thing. I was like, who's that playing drums? He goes, it's me. I'm like, you son of a bitch. He's like, he, I was like, that sounds really good. He goes, yeah, man. I, okay, so here's what I figured out. And he plays guitar. He plays everything. I mean, he, he plays little mm -hmm. drums. I knew that. But it felt really good. And he goes, what I did is I pulled the hi-hat back so that my hand was moving like I was strumming a guitar. And then I just put a stick in it, so the hi-hat was back a little bit. And then I would just kind of like swing the stick like I was strumming a guitar and then hit two and four. And I'm like, that swings, man. That Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. I just thought that was really, just really fascinating. Well, you're originally from Waynesboro, Mississippi, and then you moved to Hattiesburg, is that right? Yeah. 
uh, <laughs> I was not, not expecting that much uh, detailed background information, oh. but... Uh, <laughs> and but your, yeah, um, that... your, uh, um, your credit card is... Uh, <laughs> you're two months behind. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely a musician, right? <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> but yeah, they, yeah, you're right. I, I grew up in, a, in Waynesboro, Mississippi, which is a really small place. Um, and, uh, like I said, you know, when I was a kid, like when I first got into wanting to play drums, like I didn't even know anyone else who owned a drum kit. Uh, and it was kind of like that for a few years, um, probably until I was, I don't know, I'd probably been playing at least four or five years before I met someone else who also played drums, wow. like outside, outside of like school band and that sort of thing. Um, but as far as someone who actually had a drum kit, um, but, uh, yeah, I, um, you know, had a, played, uh, played in a band with my brother and his friends, which was funny because I was, you know, seven years younger than all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then started playing with some other, I mean, for, for years and years, I was always the youngest person in the band by like a considerable number of years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, ended up moving to Hattiesburg, I guess I was 18, maybe just night, ter- just turned 19. Um, and Hattiesburg's, you know, it's a little bit bigger town. There's a college there. Um, you know, had a lot, had a lot more going on. Did you move for, on your own or was it with I family? did. Okay. No, I, I moved on my own. Um, and most people moved to Hattiesburg to go to college. Uh, I just moved because I didn't want to be in my hometown anymore. Yeah. And there really wasn't anything else to do. Wow. Um, and to, you know, I was already, I mean, all throughout high school, I was in a, in a basically like a punk rock band that would go play gigs on the weekends, whether at, you know, whether it was house parties or, VFW halls or, you know, all that sort of thing, just kind of around South Mississippi. And, uh, I already knew, I mean, by the time I was, I don't even remember how old, I mean, I always knew that like, all I want to do is play music. Yeah. I don't want to, I had no interest in, uh, pursuing anything else. Um, the problem well, the, but the, the thing is, because of the time and place that I grew up, I didn't always necessarily know how to go about pursuing that. Mm-hmm. But that, um, as I, you know, I guess got to be in my teen, teenage years and was playing in bands that were actually playing gigs and stuff and kind of discovering, I guess, more like, like the underground music scene. Yeah. You know, which kind of started with just like seeing just seeing stuff on like MTV as, as like the, the music uh, trends of the time kind of started to change. Like when I was a little kid and I was just listening to whatever my brother listened to, that was the era of hair metal. Yeah. And, you know, so like all the first bands that I liked were like all of these, you know, huge arena sized rock bands and metal bands. And, you know, so 
to be a kid that lives in the middle of nowhere, it seems, it almost seems like, like, how is that even real? Like, how do you even (laughs) become that? You know, because I mean, I didn't even know anyone else who really played music, much less played in front of people. And then, you know, I liked all these bands, but you know, it was just crazy. But then as you know, the musical trends started to change and you started the, the rock bands that you started to see on TV and that sort of thing, it started to become a little bit more realistic. Well, who were the early bands that your brother was listening to that you got into? Uh, <laughs> or do you want to admit? Oh, no, I mean, sure. I, will. It's, I mean, it's comical to me now. I mean, some of them are still some of my favorites and some of them are just absolutely laughable. But um I mean, my my first favorite drummer was probably Tommy Lee, uh-huh. and like, just I, I I I don't know what it was. I think I mean I liked the music, but I think I was just drawn into just the absolute like over the top aspect of everything, of just you know, like these guys look like they're from another planet. Yeah. You know, it almost seemed, I mean, I I think some of my, like my first memories was like, my brother had a bunch of the old Kiss records and uh, I would just, I remember looking at the album covers and at first, you know, at first when I first saw them, like I didn't even really understand that they were a band, (laughs) you know, like I just, I thought like, is this some, I just thought it was like a comic book thing or something, Totally. you know? Um, and but uh, you know a lot of the bands that I was listening to at that time you know just kind of absorbing it from what my brother was listening to is you know like the Motley Crue uh, you know all of the hair metal stuff plus he was really into uh, Van Halen mm-hmm. uh, Ozzy and then I guess around that time too uh, a big turning point was like. Like for a long time, I thought hair metal, I thought that was heavy metal. Yeah, right. I just thought that was what it was all like. And then one day he got off the school bus with a cassette copy of Metallica, Master of Puppets. Mm -hmm. And then that changed everything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I wasn't so, you know, now it was like discovering like thrash metal. And it was a more extreme version of that. But at the same time, it was also a little bit more it just seemed more real. Like it didn't have this sort of like fantasy. Uh, I don't know. They just, they just looked like real people. Like they looked like some of the guys that my brother was hanging out with. Right. The, the hair just, it wasn't, right. there wasn't hairspray in the hair and, and like just in jeans and not. Yeah. I get it, man. For sure. Yeah. And it just, that and, uh, kind of discovering uh getting into skateboarding at that time um and a lot of the music that kind of coincided with that like it was a much more that was i guess leading that was kind of leading to me discovering like punk rock and you know just kind of a more like underground thing which at the time again like you know this is years and years before the internet existed and if you live in a small town in the middle of nowhere like right you know it's kind of difficult to to find some of that stuff, but I kind of became more just kind of became more obsessed with finding music that wasn't on the radio and wasn't just necessarily on MTV all the time. 
And then through, through digging into that stuff, it kind of opened up a whole world of like discovering that, Hey, you could just put a band together with your friends and just start playing, yeah. you know, like you don't have to, there's a whole, whole big gigantic space in between just you in your room playing your drums in a sold out arena with like pyrotechnics and stuff. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of in between there. And once I really discovered that and got into a point where, you know, I was actually playing gigs with my friends just in our bands, then it just kind of opened up the whole world of possibilities of, uh, you know, we can go out and do this. We're probably not going to make any money. We, we didn't make any money, but like we knew it's like, well, you know, but it's like, here's this thing that we want to do. Like we can go do that. I think it's really amazing if I just interject here, because I grew up in the eighties and totally saw all these things that you're talking about. And, and you're right, man, from the moment you're playing drums in the basement to what you see on MTV and, you know, watching, I was watching live concerts, uh, Iron Maiden and Rush and all this stuff. And I'm like, that seems so far away. And then the metal stuff with the gated reverb on the snare and like all this shit that didn't sound like it sounded in my room. Right. And I, I, I think we're kind of victims of, well, me more, probably more than you, of kind of the, the era in which like, oh man, well, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. I wonder if that, it was so alien. I think it's a really interesting point that you bring that, that there just seemed, there was such a disconnect. And then you don't have to be from a small town to feel that disconnect. You could be from anywhere and just be like, wow, how, how, how do you get there? How do you do that? And a lot of people think, well, that's the music business. That's how you become successful. I mean, real quick, my sister said once, I worry about you. Like, if you don't make it on MTV, that you're going to be disappointed that you don't make it in the music business. Because she thought that was the definition of success, you know? Yeah, and that, I mean, that just those words right there, I mean, that's that that idea of uh, the definition of success. Yeah. I mean, that's been a, a concept that has floated around with me for years because all through those high school years and then moving to Hattiesburg, starting other bands, actually going out and just doing full on DIY self book tours yeah. of, of all over the Southeast. And then sometimes all, all the way across the country you know, and f- for years, like doing that sort of thing and people, whether it's, you know, friends, family members, coworkers, whatever, just kind of going like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like you're not making money at this and, you know, you drive a 15 passenger van everywhere as your daily driver vehicle. Like nothing about this makes any sense, you know, but it kind of becomes a thing of like, You know, I mean, the only way I'm ever going to get to do any of this is to just actually go out and do it. Right. And, you know, I can't, (laughs) what am I supposed to do? Like, wait for somebody to knock on my door and say, hey, do you want to come be in a successful band? Like, (laughs) that does, it doesn't work like that. Um, And then, you know, that, uh, 
that was that was a major thing, like uh, a, a huge turning point for me. I guess I was 20 years old. Um, I went on tour with a band from Memphis as a fill-in drummer. Um, and they were, they were a punk band that was signed to an indie label at the time. And so, you know, they toured nationally. They had, you know, some records out and they had played like I'd seen, you know, I was a fan of that band and I'd seen them, you know, they, I saw that they would go on tour with other bands that I liked. And, uh, that was really my introduction to seeing like, this is what just going out and, and just doing it and, and going on tours like, and it's not, you know, you, when you, when you talk to someone who's not a musician or not in the industry by any means, and you say, yeah, we're going on tour, they automatically think buses or mm-hmm. planes or, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and, you know, fortunately I've got to experience that side of things, but, you know, there's a process to getting all to all of that. Right. And, uh, but yeah, like my, you know, like going out and, and doing that. And then that was just another, a big learning moment of like, Oh, you know, there is a way to do this. And it's a, it's a long, hard road to travel to try to build something out of nothing, you know, but and what was that touring experience like? Like, you talk about the DIY touring, where yeah. you've got your van. Your definition of success in this respect is to finish the tour, whether it be a week, a month, two months, three months, to then break even. That's success of a DIY yeah. tour. And 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 at that time, I mean, that happened maybe like twice. <laughs> I mean, playing music, like alter my, you know, I didn't, I didn't move to Nashville until I was 31. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like all of my twenties was just doing the, the DIY thing and like, you know, still having a regular job, but always kind of like having a job that, that would allow me to leave for amounts of time and come back. Sure. But, you know, yeah, I mean, that was the thing was like, uh, yeah, everything just, you know, piling into a van, um, sleeping on floors, playing almost, I mean, playing places that aren't even close to actually being legitimate music venues sometimes, <laughs> whether it's, you know, in houses or, you know, there would always be these crazy situations where like, uh, there used to, like there used to be um, when I first got into that world, uh, it was kind of carried over. There used to be this publication that this punk rock magazine would put out once a year called Book Your Own Fucking Life, <laughs> and it was a collection of like people from all over the country that that put on shows, and it it basically became like a your guide to DIY booking. Yeah, and uh, they eventually, you know, as the inter- the internet came into prominence. It became a strictly online thing, and uh, that's that's how you would go about booking those types of tours. Um, and so, a lot of you know, pretty often you would run into these situations where uh, there'd be it's like some literally like some kid in a town somewhere that decides that they're going to start booking punk rock shows or whatever, and uh, 
they find some place in town that will let them do it. But there's always some sort of communication disconnect somewhere. Right. So uh, you show up to a place, you know, I, I don't even remember where this, I remember showing up to a place one time and it's like, man, this is literally a pizza restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we're going to move a bunch of tables and, you know, there's going to be three or four bands play. And <laughs> that's probably only going to happen at that place once because they're going to realize, wow, you know, 50 kids packed into this place to see these bands make this horrible, loud noise and nobody bought any pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and the, lin the linoleum floor that I know that these restaurants have, I can picture it. It just oh, uh, yeah. probably sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I you know, and there was a time in my life that that just sounded so amazing. Like just to be out with your friends, I would sleep anywhere, eat whatever, and just we're we're doing it, man. We were out there, yeah, uh, fooling ourselves uh, in, in, <laughs> in some respects, but still at a time in your life when you could get away with it, and your expenses were low, and your responsibilities were, um, you know. Not as great. Uh, and I think it's really important that, I mean, can you imagine not having gone through that in your life to be where you're at now and thrown into the experiences you've, you know, had the opportunity to be a part of over the last, you know, many, uh, you know, re in recent years yeah, and, and be able to like handle it with grace and, and experience and all those things. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a huge, I mean, I, I really, I don't, I mean, if I hadn't, if I hadn't put in that many years of just essentially kind of, you know, banging my head against the wall, trying to, you know, make some sort of progress. Um, I don't think I would have ever, I mean, if I hadn't done that, I don't think I ever would have moved to Nashville and tried to, like take on the, the idea of like, Oh, I'm going to just go try to be like a hired player now. Cause like that, the idea of a hired player, like, I mean, that was never even in my mind for many, many years, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I was always just, I was always just into bands, you know, like I, my, my favorite drummers were just drummers from the bands that I liked. Sure. And, uh, you know, I would occasionally pick up like drum magazines and stuff, because there would be like someone from one of the bands that I like was, was in that issue, you know, and you read through it and start, you know, I'd noticing, you know, these guys that pop up that are like, these are session players and, you know, these are these people that get hired to play with these solo artists. And I, you know, early on, like that really didn't speak to me at all. Yeah. You know, it was always more like, I, I just, that ended up being even something long after I had moved to Nashville. I think that was the thing I kind of struggled with was, uh, it took me a long time to get used to the idea of talking about things in terms of just me and not in terms of a group. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I just, I, I always felt, I've always had a hard time with the, the whole idea of networking and, you know, meeting people with the, you know, with the intent of like, well, maybe, you know, maybe they'll hire me to play drums. Like there's just always been something 
about that that kind of just goes against my natural instinct. Sure. Um, and I, I, you know, it's it's funny that I mean I feel really lucky that you know the the things that I've ended up getting to do since moving here that have kind of been, I guess you know, for lack of a better term, the more successful things. Um, those things ended up happening really organically. Right. And there's, and there's, you know, there's all these weird, you know, not really weird, but there's all these connections that just sort of happened without, without having to do any of that. Like, Hey, let me go introduce myself to this person. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it just kind of unfolded like that. It might be safe to say that sometimes when you're in network mode or you're trying to get out there and do things in an unorganic way, you find yourself in, or I'm speaking from, you know, personal experience, sometimes you find yourself in musical situations that you don't want to be in, whether it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the, the, the people involved, the kind of music, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Is this? I don't think this is what I want. I I definitely. I mean, I've had I've had some real struggles with that sort of thing. To the point that, like, it I started to question myself. Like, did did I make the right choice in doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, because I I think I went for a long time of. I think I had kind of convinced myself that the only way I would be able to make a career out of it would be to end up playing music that wasn't necessarily my thing. Yeah. But if I could just, you know, as long as I didn't hate it too much, mm-hmm. then, you know, then then the the positive sides of everything would sort of outweigh that. You know, and there and there's been times where that kind of worked out for a little while, but at the end of the day for me, you know, just for, from my own perspective, sure. Um for for me to stay attached to something on any sort of long term basis, like I I have to feel really strongly about it. Yeah. Um. You know, there's always that phrase. There's that phrase that people throw around a lot when they're talking about being a hired musician, where they they talk about the three things. You got to pick two out of the three things right. between you know music, money, and people. And I think the music part of that, all too often gets the least amount of value placed on it. Sure. You know, I mean, I, I've had, I've, I've had a lot of experiences where, you know, yeah, they paid me to do it. They treated me really well. I got along with everyone, but you know, like I said, you know, for, for, for me to really want to be a part of something for a long period of time and, you know, have my name attached to it, like I, I, I really have to, I really have to feel good about it from a creative, like from an artistic standpoint. The snare drum feature for this week's episode is the six and a half by fourteen Bayer snare drum, performed by Nashville session drummer Mark Beckett. There's a great podcast interview that the band does uh will hoag's band and y'all and uh it's called tour story like the horror story podcast but it's tour oh yeah we did that uh 
was it was that, uh, January of last year or so? I think it was, it was spring of last year. It was done. It was the same time. So a little side note, the band, the first, when I was telling you earlier, the, the first band that I went on tour with from Memphis, yeah, uh, it was a band called Pez. One of the guys that does the tour stories podcast is the bass player from Pez. Okay. So we, we've known each other for 20 plus years. Yeah. And, uh, that was how that connection came about. And we, we were in Memphis to play the, um, the Lucero block party. Okay. And so while we were there, we just went ahead and, and did the podcast as well. Awesome. It, you, you talk about it. There was a story. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about you guys experiencing Katrina and then like right when there was a tour and getting ready to start. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was 2005. So that was kind of the height of, uh, my space. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, I was actually, I used my space to book our tours at the time, um, which actually worked pretty well. And, uh, we had just that band that I was in at the time in Mississippi, we had, recorded an album uh you know or cd i guess i should say for that time sure no one no one was really doing vinyl at that time and uh so yeah so i you know i was in the middle of i was booking this like three week long tour and uh i was uh i didn't have i didn't have my own computer at the time so i was going over to the singer's house and using his computer and uh and it never failed, like doing the DIY thing, like, like leading up to the day, like even when you're leaving for the tour, you're still kind of booking some of the shows. Sure. You know, it never just kind of all works out at the same time. And, uh, I think it was maybe the, the day before the hurricane, I was over there, you know, checking emails, kind of get, getting everything sorted out and the TV's on and there's a map and it's showing the hurricane and we all, like no one was saying anything. And we just kind of knew like, I don't think we're going to be able to do this tour. And, uh, so the hurricane hits our, uh, we had a, you know, 15 passenger van. We had my, uh, we were borrowing a friend's trailer, uh, and the, that friend of ours would always go on tour and just kind of tag along. So uh, the van and trailers parked in front of my house and these two gigantic pine trees from across the street get blown down and land on the trailer. Oh, my gosh. So luckily our, our gear wasn't destroyed, but the, the trailer was destroyed. Wow. And so we get all the gear out of the trailer cram it into the van. Um, but of course, you know, the, the hurricane hit. So like all the power was knocked out. Um, the house I was living in sustained a lot of damage. And so my girlfriend and I were staying at her parents' house, which, but still, you know, like no electricity or anything, but we did have a bunch of shows booked and so we kind of all decided, like, well, let's just go play the ones we can play. We would buy the vans that churches were getting rid of. Mm -hmm. 
like, you know, when they would, they would buy new church vans and they would sell their old ones. And so, you know, multiple times we would buy a van that had like the name of the church on the side (laughs) and Hattiesburg, Mississippi underneath it. And so we basically just peeled off the letters, but it still had Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Yeah. And, uh, everywhere we went, you know, people, they would see the Mississippi on the side of the van and would ask us about it. And, it was wild. I remember stopping. We were stopped somewhere maybe to get food or something. And this couple came up to us and started talking about it. And we were, you know, kind of telling the whole story of the hurricane and the trailer being destroyed, all that sort of thing. And, uh, they just, out of nowhere, they just handed us a hundred bucks. Wow. And so we were like, well, here, let's, you know, let me just give you, let me give you a hundred dollars worth of merchandise. Yeah. You know, like here, take some CDs, take some shirts, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was a wild time. It was, it was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing that people would be really generous like that. Wasn't there a guy that came up to you? He was, he was asking for help, asking for money. And then he looked and saw you guys <laughs> were from Mississippi. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. That remind. Yeah. I think we were, I think we were in New York. I think we were just walking on the street in New York and our bass player was wearing a shirt that said New Orleans on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came up and was asking us for money. And I was like, you know, sorry, man, I don't, I don't have anything. Our bass player was like, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, we're basically like es- escaping the hurricane. <laughs> he actually was like, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> he, like, he apologized for asking us. <laughs> See, I, I do my research, Alan. I do Apparently my... so. <laughs> um, that's crazy. I just, it was just a fascinating story. Just like in this current situation that we're in, when everyone's trying to like navigate what's going on and, and how we make it through the other end. I mean, there's, I, I love the concept of that podcast too. Like just horror stories of touring. And, and yeah. that's kind of a, I have a, a list of questions that kind of float around in my, uh, you know, like I can always ask these questions to any guest I have on this podcast. And one of them is like, do you have an experience or a story of like a near disaster gig or something like that? And and everyone has one, you know, and you could. I mean, I have, <laughs> I mean, not, not to sound like, a, oh, I can one up that sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean. You know, I have, I mean, there, there's stories from, from that sort of touring world of just, you never know what's going to happen. Like our, our van, our van died in outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. And just, you know, when you have no, when you're, when you're basically making no money and then that happens, it's like, well, well, the tour is over, you know, like, I mean, it was going to cost as much to fix the van. I mean, it was going to cost more than what we actually paid to buy the van. <laughs> um, and so then it became a thing of like, well, do we, do we pay this much money and hope the van makes it through the rest of the tour? Or do we just leave it and just figure out how to get ourselves and our gear back home and just, you know, deal with the fact that this was a total loss yeah and so that's that's what we had to do and so 
a couple of guys ended up getting plane tickets home and then myself and two other two other band members like i did all of the driving we were going to drive or we did we drove this box truck with all of our gear from basically salt lake city utah back to hattiesburg mississippi oh my gosh but in the process of doing that we drove through a blizzard in wyoming and hit a patch of black ice and just slid off the highway into the median and just and and this is like middle of the night you know just insane i mean there's just that was i don't know if maybe that was the most extreme situation of that but just you know it's one of the it's one of the aspects of that world that like sometimes i miss it and then sometimes i don't at the same time right it's like because at the time it's just like you don't know you know you don't know how you're going to get out of this situation you know all kinds of crazy stuff happens. It makes for good stories later. Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. you know, if you wanted to ask me right now, like, Hey, do you want to just hop in a van and drive across the country <laughs> in a van that, you know, may or may not break down 200 miles down the road, um, and sleep on floors all the time. Like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, unless, I mean, we would have to be somehow changing the world with our amazing music for it to be <laughs> worth it. But right, right. you know, that's just not going to happen. It, it is interesting. There's some sort of thing, cyan, you know, chemically that happens in your brain that in the moment when when the shit is happening, you're like, "This is awful. I can't believe this." But looking back later, they're some of the best memories, and I think it really triggers that memory. But I think it's really important to have those experiences so you know how to get along with people on the road, uh, in the studio on the gig, you know? Yeah. And you definitely have stories to tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. That's, that's really amazing. And it's, and if we make it through like you all did alive and no one got seriously hurt, then you're good to go. <laughs> yeah. You know, here we are. <laughs> yes. Everybody's, everybody's doing all right. Well, how did you first get started you know, not being Mr. Network, not uh, maybe not keeping up with your MySpace uh, as much uh, these days. How how did you get started after you moved to Nashville? You said you had friends. Yeah. So uh, my roommate when I first moved here was um, a guy that was also from Mississippi that I had known since years, years back when I first kind of started playing in punk bands and that sort of thing. He had moved here years earlier. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of automatically got connected with a few people just through that, that situation. Um, and then also, I, I, this is another just kind of ridiculous, it's ridiculous to think about it now, but, um, you know, when I moved here, I had never, I'd never auditioned for anything before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really had no idea, like, I didn't really know how to get started or how to go about, you know, really anything. And, uh, so I just thought to myself, well, I guess I'll go on Craigslist. Yeah. And not, not knowing at all how, just how ridiculous that is. But my plan was like, I'm just going to go on Craigslist 
look at all the ads of people that are looking for drummers, pick one that actually seems legit and seems like they actually might have stuff happening. And I'm just going to go audition for it, whether I really want it or not, or whether I get it or not. I feel like I should just have the experience of doing that. And, uh, so I did and, uh, actually ended up joining a band, um, that really ultimately the band didn't really go anywhere, but like the main like singer songwriter of that band is like one, still like one of my good friends to this day. And I ended up playing on like a couple of his, he's done like some solo records and stuff, you know? Um, so there was, there was a positive experience to that, but also, is that Josh? Um, uh, no, that is a, a guy named Stuart Easton. Okay. Gotcha. Um, he, he had moved here just a couple of months before me from, from LA, he and one of his friends who was the guitar player in that band, they had a band in LA called day of the outlaw. And that was the band that, you know, they had put the ad up for. And when I looked them up like online, you know, they had already made an, an album that sounded really good. They had a really professional looking, uh, video and they had already done a little bit of touring, you know? So it just, it just seemed like they actually, you know, kind of had it together and uh so i ended up joining that band and uh recording an ep with them and then that you know that kind of ultimately fell apart after a little while but um i kept i just i just kept playing with stewart whenever i could um and i've ended up i've i've played on two of his solo albums one of which just he just put out a couple of months ago um but it's kind of, I mean, I guess kind of in a similar situation to all of us. It's like, well, here's this new music, but we can't can't play shows behind it right now. Right, right. Well, it, early on, I mean, how did you make ends meet? I mean, the, I guess the band was traveling and stuff like that. And... Uh, yeah, I was in, well, I mean, I was, there, there was a while where I was in like three bands, none of which were necessarily like money-making bands. Mm-hmm. There was one that I was, I mean, I was getting paid a little bit. I was in a band called Sound and Shape. And uh, there's an interesting backstory to that. I actually met those guys when I was still playing in bands in Mississippi. We ended up crossing paths, um, I think maybe somewhere in Louisiana. We were on a show together. And so then they became one of those bands that, we kind of did the show trade thing with where they would come down to Mississippi and play with us. Yeah. We would come to Nashville and play with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I ended up joining that band shortly after moving here. Um, but their, their original drummer, uh, a guy named Jerry Pentecost. Yeah. Is actually, uh, he's, he, he currently plays with, uh, old crow medicine show mm-hmm. and he was with uh he played with amanda shires for a while he's actually the person that recommended me to will right and so that's how you know another one of those just that was a connection that was made years ago and organically yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i just uh that was one of those where like i just I, one day i got a text message from will that was like hey i got your number from jerry pentecost which I mean, I knew I knew who Will Hogue was for sure, but uh-huh. um, 
but yeah, it was just through, just through friends I'd already known for a long time. But uh, going back to your, your question, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I had a couple of different part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I, uh, I had a job that had, that kind of, um, required me to go out, uh, to different bars and different sort of things like that. It was like a, I was like, I was doing promotional work for a brand and, uh, it kind of made me, um, were you one of the Red Bull girls? Was that you? I saw not exactly. It was actually for, uh, <laughs> it was actually for camel cigarettes, what? which is funny because I have never smoked a cigarette in my life. Um, but yeah, I used to have to go out to bars and talk to people and which was weird because, uh, and I think through that and just through the whole, like, trying to go out and network and meet people. I kind of discovered after moving here that like, I think I have a level of social anxiety that I didn't know that I had. Interesting. Um, but you know, I would go and I would have conversations with people and yeah, I mean, early on I was, that was kind of one of those moments where I was starting to question, like, did I, did I do the right thing? Because, you know, I'll, I'll meet these people and talk about music. And there was a lot of just, I don't know, it was just, there, were, there was way more industry talk mm-hmm. than there was music talk. Create, yeah, create, creative talk and that sort of thing. It can be very discouraging, but I know exactly what you're saying. I, I think that's what's so great about your story and like how you're relating how, how there's probably listeners that can totally relate to what you're talking about and and the benefits of being honest with who you are and like making connections organically and finding yourself in situations where you want to be, you know, it's not always the answer to, to try and one up somebody with connections and, you know, be first in line to hear about, an audition or uh, who needs a drummer this because maybe it's just not, not the right time, the right situation. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, you know, I mean, I think, you know, it takes time for anyone to kind of get to a place where they kind of start to feel like, okay, this, this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. I think, I think one of the, you know, perhaps like one of the reasons where, I felt really unsure about some things. I think it was just because I was getting started with that part of that aspect of a career. I was getting started kind of late compared to a lot of people. I hear you. You know, cause I mean, think about, I mean, you know, people that move here when they're 20 years old, right. You know, and here I am 31 and, you know, very quickly discovering how, how much there is that I was, I was unaware that I didn't even know these things, you know, like, like for example, like, you know, I recorded to a click. I never played live to a click before moving here. Right. Me neither. You know, so that, that was like a a new thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just, there was a number of things where like, you know, you, you don't really know until you kind of just get thrown into it and you have to figure it out as you go. Yeah. 
but probably all the experience that you had leading up to that, if you're doing something new, you still had enough to go on to be able to figure it out probably pretty quick. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that wasn't, that sort of thing wasn't nearly as much of a struggle as just the, I think just the really trying to figure out what it is that I really wanted. Okay. You know, there's the, there's the idea that, you know, where I think where I was naive on my part when I moved here, it was just, I was convinced that if I could get myself into a situation where I was making a living playing drums, that I would be happy. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, there's times where it's like, well, I ended up being able to do that and it's cool for a while. But, you know, going back to that same thing, if I'm not truly excited about what is happening musically, then, then it really starts to, to bring up some almost like existential questions. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like, I've spent my entire, I mean, I got my first drum kit right before I turned nine. And I've, you know, I'd say from age 14 until now, I've never gone more than maybe six months to a year of not being involved in some sort of band situation. Mm-hmm. And so after dedicating that much of your life and having something be so much of a, a huge part of your identity, like where, how is it a fair trade off to get to a point where, yeah, I make money playing drums, but I don't really love what I'm playing. It's a tough question, man. It's an important question. I I think so. I mean, I know for me, for me, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's it's the most important thing. Yeah. And and I think it's really you, you make a good point. You're like this is important to me and it, it I think it varies for everyone depending on their situation, depending on kind of where they prioritize things, but I'm in I was in the same boat, you know. I just want to make a living and at playing drums. You know, that I want that to be my job. I added on to that, you know, the reason is because I just, I love to play and I figured if this is what I do for a living, then I get to do it all the time. I'm not having to carve out a little bit of time to play some drums or do a gig or practice in between my day job. If I did it for a living, then I get to play all the time. But, and maybe that's just kind of age and maybe that's not having a lot of foresight, uh, <laughs> you know? Um, hopefully that's where things like this conversation helps shed some light on those that are in that place in their life and they can, you know, start asking themselves difficult questions, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's something positive to take about, to take from almost any experience of like going out and playing music. Yeah. You know, I mean... You know, even even the the gigs that I've had, where I've, I've learned that's a shitty gig. <laughs> yeah, or just you know, I mean, yeah, there's things where it's like, well, you know, I don't love the music, but I mean, I went to a bunch of places I'd never been before. Um, you know, there or just you know, there's certain things you learn along the way of like, 
what is part of being a professional musician, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you know, I mean, for me, like I, I'm, I know specifically, like there's, there's stuff where it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really look back on playing any of that music, you know, and, and, and miss any of that at all. But like, there was definitely positive things that came out of it. Right. And, you know, and, and in some way like that, that stuff prepared me for what came after, you know, in the same way that years of just, you know, slugging it out, uh, in the DIY world did, you know, I mean, they, all of the, all of those experiences kind of have their place in the, in the whole storyline, but you know, it's, it still becomes an issue of, uh, you know, at some point you, you, you sit around and you look at, you think about what you've done and like, you know, ultimately, I mean, for me, it's like, I just want to, I want to be able to look back at, you know, some sort of creative output and, and be able to be happy with it and be proud of it. Here's David Northrup performing on the six and a half by 14 buyer snare drum. familiar with will uh i mean i remember way back when his second album came out i was working in a music store like in a a cd store there was i don't know i don't know if it even still exists there used to be this chain of music retail stores called fye and uh i worked at one for a long time and um so i was kind of aware of i mean everything going on in music from basically 2000 to 2005 because that was during the time that I worked there. And so, you know, I remember hearing him back then. I think that was the Blackbird on a Lonely Wire album, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I was, I was aware of him and, and kind of, uh, that sort of, that sort of world that he was in, uh, at the time (laughs) back in those years, I never would have thought that I would end up playing with him. But, um, then, you know, just you know, a few years, a couple years earlier, while playing here, there was a, a guy that I was playing with that um, wanted that uh, covered a couple of Will songs, and uh, so I remember like getting sent, like saying like, "Hey, learn these two songs. I want to cover these," and in listening to those, I would inevitably like end up listening to more songs off of those records that that those were on. Yeah. And just remember thinking like, wow, I, you know, I really like, I didn't, I didn't realize that he had as many albums as he does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I kind of dug into it and realized, man, this stuff's really good. And so one day I'm t- literally standing in my kitchen making a sandwich and I get a text message from a, an unknown number and it's from Will and it says, you know, Hey, got your number from Jerry Pentecost. Would you be, uh, maybe be interested in playing. And, uh, it's like, yeah. So it basically went from got a text message to, we went and met down the street at a coffee shop and just kind of sat and talked for a little bit. Um, and it was just really like really informal. Like it just kind of went from hanging out and talking a little bit. And then, you know, he sent me 
like maybe six songs. And it was, it wasn't so much, it didn't really feel like an audition. It was really just more like, like he, um, it was basically, he was putting a whole new band together. Yeah. Um, he already had a guitar player in place who Tom, who's still in the band. He had played, Tom had played on the anchors album. And so he was putting together the rest of a touring lineup mm-hmm. to tour behind that album. And so it was just like, well, why don't we just get together and jam these songs and just see how it feels, you know, and go from there. And, uh, that's basically what happened was just like, like we jammed in my basement at the, in the house I was living at the time. I was like, you know, I've, I've got a rehearsal space set up, Yeah, you know? So it was just, I mean, it was almost like, it was almost just like starting a band with some guys you met, you know, like it didn't really feel like, Oh, this is a, this is a big deal sort of thing. I mean, it was a big deal. Like I was, I was definitely excited at the idea of playing with them, but it just, um, the approach to making that happen was really laid back. Right. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to meet at sound check and, uh, you're, you'll come in between five and five fifteen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Way down. Like, I don't even, I don't even know. Like, I think maybe he talked to some other people. I don't even know if they even got together and jammed with anyone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was just like, all right, this, this works. Um, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, we, we got together and jammed and I think he called me later the same night and asked me to do it. There's so many stories of people getting together, you know, to audition or like an artist is interested in, and, and they say, Hey, let's meet for coffee and sit down and talk. And it, it, people forget that's a big, that can be a big, uh, part of it. Oh, Absolutely. It just, it all happened at a really strange time for me, like, because I, I had a gig that I had been a part of for a while that, you know, I mean, I've kind of been referencing all of all along that like, you know, I was busy enough with it and had a lot of positive experiences with it, but I just wasn't really into it creatively. Mm. Um, or there really, I mean to be fair, there really wasn't a space for me in any sort of creative aspect. It was really just more like a live, you know, playing thing Mm -hmm. that I, that I wasn't really happy with anymore. And, you know, was looking, looking to hopefully be able to do something else. And around the same time, I had also started playing with Lily Hyatt. Yeah. And that's another one of those, like, I met her because we both worked at Whole Foods Hmm. and I had no, like at the time that she worked there, like my, my girlfriend and I both worked at Whole Foods at the time. And, uh, a lot, you know, there's tons of musicians that work there. Oh yeah. Um, and, uh, I didn't even know, first of all, I I definitely didn't know that she was the daughter of John Hyatt (laughs) and I, and I didn't even really know that she played music. Um, she was just, you know, a coworker. And then, um, around the time that I quit that job and basically kind of started playing drums full time, uh, she put out her second record. And while I was gone on tour, my girlfriend went to one of her shows and, uh, she was texting me and she was like, 
Lily Hyatt's amazing. <laughs> She's like, you know, like I had no, no idea like that it was going to be that good. And then I got back and I remember listening to her record and, and being blown away by it. And so that became, you know, one of those things where like, if I would bump into her somewhere, it was one of those, you know, like, Hey, if you ever need a drummer, yeah, you know, and, uh, you were networking, then, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it finally, finally, that that opportunity came up where she's like, uh, she had some shows booked and, and needed a drummer, and I just happened to be off during that time. And so I went and and played some shows, and uh, you know, it was kind of a. I mean, this was like kind of back to feeling like almost like a punk rock tour in a way of like we're all just crammed in a van yeah you know um but i was getting i i you know she was paying me i wasn't going and doing it for free yeah and there were people coming to the shows (laughs) um that was a crucial thing too um so i you know I, i came home from that like really i i had a really great time and uh that kind of kind of planted the seed of like, I think I need to get out of the situation I'm in mm. and I need to gravitate towards something like this, you know, that is really exciting. You know, even if it means, you know, maybe I do get paid a little bit less per show mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, I, I just thought like, you know, I'll, I'll figure out the rest, but, you know, we'll see what happens. But then you know, I didn't really know where, where that was going to go because I think that would probably would have been like, it was like September of 2016. And then she toured the rest of that fall solo. And so I didn't know, I mean, that was just one of those situations where like, well, maybe when the time comes and she needs somebody to come play drums, maybe I'll get a call. Um, but then she ended up the next time I, she got in touch with me, it was to see if I was available to go to South Carolina for a week to record. Oh, cool. And, uh, so, you know, I ended up doing that. I ended up playing on, that was her third album, uh, Trinity Lane. Yeah. Which was, uh, with that one, she, she moved up from a smaller label to, uh, to new West records, which is a little bit bigger. And, uh, had a great time doing that record and that band worked really well together. It's a great record, Um, man. It sounds great. Thank you. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite things I've done. I'm Mm. really, really proud of that one. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that was like a really unique experience. Just, uh, for example, like the drums and cymbals were recorded separately. Wow. Okay. I'd never done, I actually, that's the only time I've ever done that. I'd never done it before. Uh-huh. Um, so that was really fun. But then coming out of that, like I knew, like I knew the record was going to come out at some point, but that was one of those situations where like she was in between booking agents at the time. And so I didn't really know like what the plan was going to be for touring behind it. And, uh, I knew, you know, from what I knew before, she had done a lot of touring, just her and an acoustic guitar. And so I didn't know how much full band stuff there was going to be. 
So I was kind of in this position where I was waiting to see what happened with that while still playing this other gig and, you know, not really being able to just, to just quit because I didn't know what else I would do at the at that point in time. And then when Will got in touch and all of that kind of came about, it was like, well, you know, we've got shows in Europe like next month. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hold on. Let me check my schedule. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, because that was, I was kind of, that was my only hesitation was like, man, I just played on this album that I really, really like. You know, and uh, I do, and I like all of these people, you know, had all the things about it that I liked, but I was also, I mean, you know, one of the the things that just happens sometimes when you're a, like a hired player is like, you don't have control over so much of what goes on. Right. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, I mean, even, I mean, it's always like this. It's like, it, it's really difficult to, to plan because a lot of times you don't know what you're doing in three months. Oh yeah. Um, but that was the thing was like, well, I, you know, did this, you know, had this conversation with Will, we got together and jammed, it went really well. And it's like, okay, there's already tour dates basically planned for the rest of the year. Um, so I just, I, I I just felt like that was something I had to do. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, you know, I think that, you know, it's turned out to be the right decision. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm really proud of that Lily Hyatt record though, because that, that kind of became her breakthrough record. That's cool. Um, and I just, like, I'm really lucky that I got to be a part of that. Um, but yeah, then, you know, but then from there on, like that kind of set the ball rolling for playing with Will and really until, you know, <laughs> until we got to the situation we're in now, like it's kind of been nonstop. Well, what is touring like? You talked about touring on all these different ways, you know, in, in the in the old church van to tour bus. What did it what is it like with Will? Um well, I mean, we're so when I first joined, like when we were touring in 2017, uh, we were in a bus. Um, it was a bus that he actually owned, and that bus ended up breaking down on a West Coast tour in 2017, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And um, so, in order to finish the tour, uh, he just bought a van. And we hooked the trailer to the van and continued on. And we've kind of just been in the van ever since, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. I don't like, I don't really have that much of a preference. I mean, tour buses are nice, yeah, you know, but like the situation I'm in now, like when we're on tour, I mean, we're in hotels every night, Yeah, you know, like yeah. it's really not, it's not like we're really roughing it. You know, it's like we're in a van, but we're in like a new van, (laughs) you know, so like we we don't, you know, the air conditioner works and we don't have to worry, you know, I don't worry that it's going to break down every other day. Like, it's fine. Sometimes a bus can be, you know, like people are like, well, we've got this bus and so we're not going to stay at a hotel. 
you know, and it can it can be great sometimes, but then, you know, yeah, doing the van thing, unless it's just money is just not available. I mean, you have to stay in hotels. Otherwise, it's it's too dangerous, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's pros and cons to both. I mean, there's times, you know, sometimes if you're at a a festival or if you're playing a club that doesn't really have right. much, you know, where the, the green room is basically like the size of a closet, yeah. you know, those are, those are the days when sometimes you're like, man, I wish we could just go hang out on the bus. Right. Take a nap you know? or something. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. you know, that's, it, that stuff doesn't really happen often enough for it to be anything that anyone complains about. Sure. Sure. While we're on the live thing, what are you doing setup wise? Like, are you guys running ears? Are you doing wedges? Are you running a click or count offs? What's that? Uh, it's no click, no in ears, just monitor wedge, Mm -hmm. old school. Um, Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, I've, I've done, you know, I've, I've had the gigs where like it's in ears and I'm running loops and all that sort of stuff. And I like that stuff. Um, especially like when it's appropriate, but you know, for what we do, it would be absolutely pointless for me to try to use a click live. Yeah. Because I mean, for example, like for the last like basically for all of 2019, all of the touring that we did, um, we didn't even have a set list. Like we, we talk about what song we're going to play first as we're walking on stage. <laughs> and then it's just, it's whatever will decides from there. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, and, and that could either just, he either turns around and tells me what song we're going to play, or if it's a song that he starts, he just starts it. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of go. And so, you know, that also changes from night to night. Like the same song isn't necessarily going to get played exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. He may, you know, and that all just depends on the vibe of the venue, what the crowd is like, how he's feeling, you know, just whatever. Um, he may start a song and it's, it's definitely taken time to get to this point, but like, I, I watch him a lot. Right. Um, and I've learned, I mean, really like the whole band, it's like you, you kind of have to learn how to anticipate how, what the, you know, what the other players are thinking. Um, and you know, like, like I said, you know, it takes a little time to get to that, but I mean, I feel like we played so much that, um, I can tell by his posture or like if we get to a certain part of an intro and he's still playing it at a certain dynamic, then I know I'm not coming in yet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, and, uh, there was, what's funny is that there was a time where that sort of thing would probably have driven me crazy. (laughs) Um, but now I love it. Like I, I love the, the, um, just the, the the spontaneous aspect of it. The in the moment. Yeah, that it is absolutely like it is as live as it can possibly be. Yeah. You know, like and not knowing that like we're either about to do something amazing 
or there's also the very real chance that this could totally train wreck. <laughs> um, which luckily hasn't happened <laughs> too severely, but I mean, there's definitely been moments where like, oh, I definitely misread that cue, uh-huh. you know, but that's also the kind of thing where like you kind of, you kind of learn how to land on your feet from that sort of stuff too. It's really difficult to know how to prepare for that kind of thing in playing. Like we can practice and do all these things and kind of recreate a live situation in the practice room to anticipate gig situations, recording situations, you know, but to really learn how to read especially a frontman or a singer or something, a live situation is, man, it's really hard to do without it just experiencing it. Um, oh, yeah. Just, if anything, just be ready. Be, ha- heads up, man. And like you say, keeping your eye, body posture, tone, volume, all those things. Because if you can nail that and you can follow them and read them, man, you are you are number one in their book for sure. That sounded really it's stupid. A- now <laughs> it came out of my number one. <laughs> It's a, well. It's just uh, I think we kind of learned early on with this lineup. Yeah. Um, we kind of figured out kind of early on that like we we were really clicking on a lot of levels, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the trajectory of all of this is that um, how much how much trust he actually puts into the band. Mm, that's great. You know? I love that. Because, the, the, you know, it's when you're playing for a solo artist, you know, that sort of thing, it, it obviously, I mean, it can be different in every situation, you know, but um, like, for example, I mean, you know, the Anchors album was already recorded and, you know, I came in and like the bass player that plays with, we joined at the same time and that, you know, we were, okay, we're going to go out and tour behind this record and uh i remember saying to the bass player early on like man it'd be really cool if we end up getting to play on the next record yeah and uh and then that just like that that kind of happened really quickly i mean it just it became one of those things where like we went out and we we toured behind that album did like full u.s tour took off for the holidays and then shortly into 2018 we went to Europe and did, I think, like 16 nights in a row. Wow. And so everything was just, everything was just working really well. Um, all, I mean, I say that, I mean, by the end of that European tour, we were pretty fried. But we had played so many shows that we really were, um, we were really locked in. And a lot of, you know, a lot of cool stuff was happening from show to show. And, uh, you know, we, we came home from that tour and just weeks later we went in the studio to do my American dream. And, uh, and that was literally like, that was no pre-production. It was just, we, I showed up to the studio, not really knowing what I was going to be even be playing on. Mm, Wow. It was just like, he would sit down with a guitar, show us a song and then we would start tracking. Yeah. And which, I mean, some of those songs, I mean, there's, you know, that album is really more like, 
an EP worth, an EP's worth of new material, and then sort of like a reworking of some pre-existing material. And so I knew, I knew the pre-existing songs we were going to play. Um, but as far as the new songs, it was just learn it, play it right then. Yeah. Um, there's a certain beauty of that, but it's also <laughs> because oftentimes your first re- uh, instinct is the best. Yeah, and I and I think you know, I think that that recording is, I mean, that's basically what that is. That is literally just the band functioning strictly on instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, the newest record, we actually did some pre-production. Okay. Um, but it was still like a pretty quick process. Yeah. Yeah. But it made a, it made a huge difference. And I think that plays into the, um, I think that plays a big part of, uh, kind of a difference in scope, so to speak of the newer record. Like, yeah, there's, well, I mean, there's 11 songs on there's, I'm looking at the list here there's you know there's eight songs on my american dream and 11 on the latest one tiny little movies uh did you guys use a click on on this stuff or how was how did that differentiate or uh we did mm-hmm. um but it's really more i mean we yeah we we use a, a click during on both of the records um but it's also one of those like you know, will produce both of those himself. Okay. And, um, I mean, his whole thing is it's, it's more about being good than it is about being perfect. Mm. And so, you know, if there's, if there's some tiny little thing in there that isn't absolutely perfect, as long as the overall vibe is good and the attitude behind it is what feels right, then, you know, you just roll with it. That's what I was going to say. Like, what is the definition of good in this situation? Yeah. I mean, because like, I definitely, I mean, there, there's times where like, we'll listen to a playback and I'll hear something and go, ah, you want me to go fix that part? Or you want me to go like, should we just do another run at it? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, no, nah, it sounds like a person playing drums to me. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can, you know, I, I get that. And, but I mean, you know, that's the, that's just kind of the part of the overall approach with how he likes to operate is, you know, the, the overall feel and vibe and attitude behind it. I mean, that, that's what really has to be right. But I think that's a really important point in an age where so much can be fixed or there's an expectation to match what you're hearing in different genres of music. Uh, you know, what's asked of the drummer to do. And now with everyone's ability to create their own drum part on a keyboard or whatever, if you're going to get hired it's not about precision as much as it is. I think the value of energy and attitude and creativity holds a much higher value these days than precision because if somebody wants precision, they can program it. 
but you can't program ideas, you can't program creativity and and oftentimes attitude with many different genres, not just, you know, you know, this kind of thing. Right. I agree. Um, I, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, about a producer involving themselves and, and kind of how that worked. And you say that Will produced both of these. Was there any direction uh, drumming wise that occurred during the process of either of these records? Yeah, but it's it's usually pretty. Um, it's it really is more just like it's 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 rarely anything specific. It's really just more like I want this type of vibe or feel. More orange, less stripy stuff like that. Yeah, or even if it's like referencing a band or a drummer or something. Yeah, you know, um, and 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 then again, like that doesn't mean like play something that sounds exactly like this. It's just more like, this is kind of how I want this part to feel. Yeah. It's true. You know, it's funny because, you know, when I was saying, uh, listening to those records and then all these different bands kept popping into my head, like this sounds like an Elvis Costello song or this has got a Tom Petty sound to it. Vibe, there was still everybody's attitude and every, or, sorry, everybody's, style still broke through it was I, it was still you playing it was still your tones you know uh will's voice all those things so uh, again you know you can channel uh some of these uh musicians and drummers in different situations i've always found those to be or i've, I've always found that to be a really useful exercise in trying to come up with a part right away, especially if the songwriter is playing the song in the studio and say, okay, let's go, let's cut it right now. Sometimes I'm like, oh shit, what am I going to do? I have to, it sometimes helps me to go, okay, this sounds like a melon camp kind of thing. So how would Kenny swing his head when he's playing this groove? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it sometimes helps me get there. I'm never going to sound like any of these guys, no matter how hard I try but it really uh, sometimes is that little push in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I like that, you know, I mean, bef before moving here, like I had never, when I would record with my old bands, like there, there never was anyone who was taken on the role of producer. It was just the band and an engineer, you know, but like, you know, I, I, I like that sort of thing. I like the, um, you know, when it's necessarily, when it's necessary, you know, when somebody has some sort of, you know, suggestion or something. I mean, I, I like that sort of thing because that way it, it gets me out of just doing what, I don't, I don't want to say like doing what I would instinctively do. Cause some, I mean, like you said before, sometimes your instinct is exactly right, but then sometimes someone can suggest something. Yeah. And if you hadn't thought of it before, like it's still going to kind of have your own spin on it. For sure. Um, but yeah, you know, I just, I, I, I kind of like seeing what happens and the fun thing about the situation was with Will being the producer is that you know 
rarely does anybody, any sort of idea just get shot down. It's really just like, okay, well, let's try it this way. And it's either going to work or it's not. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fortunately everyone involved, you know, we're, we're all on the same page enough and have an understanding of, of what we're going for or what Will's going for that, uh, you know, every, everybody's ideas seem to make sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you just try a few things and the best idea wins. It sounds like uh, just the time he spent with y'all touring, he's like, this is going to work well in the studio because there's just a good, not only musical chemistry, but personality as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think he... I, I think he understands that, like, <clears throat> there are certain, there, especially there's certain things that this lineup sort of excels at. Whereas, you know, I mean, he's had so many different lineups of musicians, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, sure, there's plenty of, you know, people in the past that were probably better at certain things than what this lineup is, you know, but it becomes a thing where, like, you take advantage of the strengths of each lineup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's probably a unique skill to be able to recognize that and exploit those strengths. Yeah, I think so. I think it's also, I mean, like it was, I don't know, probably also the, the fact that like this, this wasn't, this lineup isn't just like slowly replacing a member at a time over years. Like this, this lineup was put together all at once. Mm-hmm. And so automatically it kind of becomes like this group of people sounds a certain way. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's where, so like myself and, uh, the guitar player and bass player have also like, we've played on other recordings with other people as well outside of just working with will and some of that's you know a lot of that comes through in these other situations are you the dream team is that what you guys are uh <laughs> i don't i don't know about i don't know about that um <laughs> just say yes and we'll move on i i yes we are absolutely the dream team um but we've done we did a like um we played on an EP for an artist from Texas that will produced and just used us as the band. Um, and then just a couple of other things here and there. And, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like there's just, there's a certain sound that happens with all of this that in the right situation, it just works really well. You know, I'm 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 looking at that. I'm I wrote it down. I'm I'm looking at that list of of the different bands that you know, like I mentioned, uh, that I heard that reminded me uh, in listening to these recordings. And you know, with maybe the exception of Elvis Costello, like these are all bands. But even Elvis had his bands. You know, he had his different bands throughout his career. It's not just right. Elvis Costello and a bunch of session players. It was oftentimes a tight-knit group so i mean there's definitely a, a band thing going on well who uh let me i've got a just two more qu- kind of quick questions for you but like who 
who do you listen to or who have you been listening to maybe band wise or drumming wise that has uh, kind of informed you on what you want to do when you play? Um, wow. Are you listening to guitar players or are you listening to just talk radio? uh no talk radio (laughs) um you know like i mean i still like i you know i grew up listening to you know metal and punk rock and all of that stuff and i still listen to a lot of that i'm still constantly digging for new bands in those genres but then also you know i do like a lot of what i guess kind of falls under the umbrella of americana Mm mm-hmm Um, and then a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff outside of that too, that goes way back. I think what, what starts to really come into play with playing with Will and and where my own influences kind of come into that is like, um, I mean, I feel like everyone, whether they wanted to or not, you grew up listening to Tom Petty. Yeah. Um, that sort of stuff just, you know, that kind of sinks into your subconscious, um, you know, stuff like, like Elvis Costello. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of, um, or, uh, kind of in the same vein, Joe Jackson. Um, and then a lot, a lot of the like bands that kind of fall under the, what gets called like power pop. Mm -hmm. Um, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know why I'm suddenly trying to blank on that. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, Elvis Costello kind of falls into that, you know, but like, you know, like the cheap trick or, um, you know, just a lot of that sort of, uh, I wouldn't call replacements power pop, but that's another band that kind of comes into play. For sure. I hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I love all shook down, man. That's one of my favorite records. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, I, it, again, like kind of the way I've always been, it's not so much that I like a specific drummer. It's really more about like liking the band mm-hmm. and the, the drummer is just part of that. I mean, there's, there are a few things that stick out. I mean, when I was a kid and I really started listening to Rush, I didn't necessarily love the band, but I couldn't, you just like, I couldn't ignore what was happening on the drums. <laughs> right. But then over, over time I did, come to to love the band yeah um but i think you know all of that all of it kind of subconsciously i mean i feel like when i talk about like my favorite like neil peart is definitely one of my favorite drummers mm-hmm. um nico mcbrain from iron maiden is one of my favorite drummers but i don't know that any of that really comes out i don't know that you would hear me play now and and pick up on any of that I, I hear what you're saying, man. It's so funny when when the Nashville Drummer Jam did a tribute to Neil Peart. Uh, some friends of mine like, man, are you going to do that? Like, I didn't really know David Parks or any of those guys. Mm-hmm. Like, man, you, this is this would totally be you because everybody knows I'm such a huge Rush fan. I'm like, I don't really play that way. Like, yeah, I'm a huge Rush fan. I I was when I was a kid and kind of circled back around and just enjoy feeling like a kid again when I listen to them now. Um, but that's not really my thing. I'm inspired, you know, but that's, I'm not going to try and sound like that. I think the thing with, with Neil is that 
the, the thing I think about his playing that has probably had the biggest impact on my playing is not so much like being able to hear any sort of similarity, but kind of his approach to putting together drum parts behind a song right. where like you could almost, yeah. Um, that was just something that at a certain age I started noticing like the way he plays the first verse is not exactly the way he plays the second verse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like there, there's some little subtle change that happens that differentiates the two. Um, it just, I, I think that was the biggest takeaway from, from his playing for me was that I, I started to notice those sorts of things. Right. And then when you recognize those kinds of things, you start to recognize the complete opposite of it. Like, uh, it's interesting, I was just had a lesson this week, uh, and we talked about creating a theme in a song. And, um, you know, just you hear a, a drummer play a part, and then they or play a drum fill, and it works really well in that song. And then they do the same drum fill and the same drum fill over and over. Or it's the same rhythm, but they voice it differently, you know. And it's like, man, they're like, I'm trying to think who, you know, Chad Cromwell here in town does that really well. Uh, Steve Jordan, you just hear these reoccurring themes. But I think it's because of recognizing these compositional skills that that Neil brings to the table it's just one way of doing it and then it kind of helps shed some light on somebody doing the complete opposite of it you know and how it works yeah Yeah. um it's a crazy time with the you know with the pandemic shit and all that stuff but it's also like socially a crazy time um it's an important time i feel uh, it's it's a hard time for 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 a lot of what's going on for a lot of people, but I feel like it's important um, for us to go through some of these difficult changes and asking a lot of questions. And the, the where I'm get, going with all this is my American dream in that the Will Hoag's record before this most recent one. Um, it's got a lot of heavy themes in it and, um, you know, some would say controversial and stuff like that. Did you guys ever feel any time on the road or from any fans that like, I mean, obviously if they, if they know Will, they're going to know where his head is at, but did you guys feel anything or hear anything with respects to especially that record? As far as like, uh, as far as like, uh, like any sort of like opposition to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean with Will, Will's a solo artist, so I mean, he's going to take the heat for everything, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I don't know if you, you had a chance to see or hear anything. I mean, I see, I, I mean, what's funny is that you, you would think with, you know, I mean, that's not his first foray into, I guess what you would call like socially conscious songwriting. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's two releases before that that are all like kind of politically oriented songs. And then there's, you know, songs kind of peppered throughout his discography that, that touch on that. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, you know, 
you'll st- I'll still see like people post on social media like the whole like shut up and sing you know we don't nobody want you know people don't listen to music to hear your political opinion they just want to hear songs and it kind of blows me away but it's like he's been singing about this stuff for years yeah um i feel like i don't know i never i i haven't experienced anything where like people actually come up in person and say something i mean i know they have to him before yeah um but another thing about that uh like when that record came out um we were on tour with social distortion right and so you know i don't i don't know it's like it kind of it suddenly got it kind of pushed him into the world of being somewhat associated with punk rock in a weird sort of way and uh and i've actually i mean and i can hear i mean i think there are elements musically that happen on that record and the new record but it's funny to start to see some reviews and um and and some of the press that gets written where like the word punk starts to get thrown around um which I'm, ex- I mean, I love it because I grew up listening to right. punk rock. Um, <laughs> and also, I mean, part of what um, got me really excited about the, the the idea of playing drums for him is that in the first batch of songs that he sent me to learn, it was one of the earlier recordings of the song Still a Southern Man. Okay. Um, and me being from Mississippi, um, that just, those lyrics, like that really really struck a chord with me and that, you know, I think that was a big part of what I had been missing was like, I, I think a lot of what I missed about the, the years earlier of, of kind of being in that world and they're al- almost kind of having this feeling of like, almost like confrontation or like this, this feeling of like, you're going out there and it's you against the world. Um, some of the aspects that I missed about that, like it, it, it felt natural for me to be in a situation where the words that are being sung are, are actually talking about some real issues and it's not just like songs about beer, you know, like it's like, but what kind of beer, Alan? (laughs) (laughs) That's, that can, that can turn into a whole argument in itself, but Um, you know, that, that, that's, a that's an important thing, but you know, I don't know. That's just part of it. I mean, there's always going to be people that, that don't want to hear anything like that. Yeah. But then there's also the people that are like, they immediately relate to it. Yeah. This whole thing, uh, just, you know, we don't want to hear your politics, just shut up and sing. Uh, it's. Man, it's so it's so exhausting to see that, to hear that. I remember uh, getting ready to go see Roger Waters a couple years ago, and uh, I'm looking on Facebook, and I see people say, hey, man, we don't want to hear your politics. I'm like, have you been listening to any Roger Waters <laughs> or Pink Floyd since the mid-60s? Like, are, right. you, are you an idiot? You think that he's going to sing about something else, or... That this is not a new phenomenon. 
I mean, you can go back to Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Hello, that's right. about lynching. I mean, it's art. It's if you don't like it, don't don't listen to it. I mean, go listen to something about beer or whatever. But seriously, I mean, I maybe it's just fear that 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 somebody has a, a large audience. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, I I think any sort of art, music, whatever. I mean, you could kind of make the argument that in some way it's all political. Hmm. I mean, and that by by choosing to not say something, you're also still saying something. Yeah. Okay. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I totally get the idea of of you know listening to music that is simply just for yeah an escape. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's a big part of. It. I mean, some of my favorite bands, you know, are like that. But um, the Captain and Tennille, great example. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. <laughs> But uh, Abba being a huge one. <laughs> sure. Uh, no, I, uh, I, just, I just thought it was a silly thing. I, I saw a thing online once that said that Abba is what Fleetwood Mac would have sounded like had they ever experienced a moment of happiness. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I don't know. It's just, I mean, I, I think if anything that the times we're in should show everyone is like, you know, you can choose to ignore things if you want, but that doesn't mean they're going away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, beyond that, I don't know. Um, but, uh, I, I, th- I think the core, I mean, for the most part, I think the, the people who are fans of will, for the most part, they, they understand that side of it. Yeah. And, and there's plenty, there's even pen, plenty of people that don't agree with him politically, but they still come to the shows. Sure. 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 No, I just, I, it just made me think of that, you know, like listening to it and, um, it's just, I don't know. It's refreshing to me personally. And I really enjoy the record and I enjoy the thoughtfulness of the lyrics and, uh, not being from the South, but raising two boys that are Tennesseans and um, just falling in love with so much of the South and so much of the people here uh, and having some of them, you know, close friends. I can't personally relate to a song like, you know, uh, what was the song again? Southern Man? or Still a Southern Man. Still a Southern yeah. Man. Um, it was good to hear uh, that song, it's, it's powerful. It's great. Well, I think even if you, I mean, I look at that song too, of like, even if you don't look at the political aspect of it, there's also just the, the part of the point of that song is coming to the terms with the fact that like something wasn't what you thought it was Mm -hmm. and that you have to face that. You know, or or maybe even like, hey, I used to say this, but now I realize that I was wrong. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, that's, I think another thing, a great thing about lyrics is like, sometimes it's blatantly spelled out for you. Sometimes it's left up to interpretation. And, you know, there's a lot of, you can find a lot of different meaning. 
Well, I wonder if Neil ever felt that way, you know, like certain things you wrote about in the late 70s and stuff and like, oh, I don't know if I feel the same way anymore. Oh, I mean, some of it, some of it he definitely has addressed. Yeah. Or did, did eventually address. Um, I mean, I, I can, I don't want to go too far into Rush because I can get really nerdy about that just as much <laughs> as anybody else. But I think I, to use that as an example, I think one of the reasons that a band that they were the band that they were and they're so unique and that they lasted for so long is because they did adapt and change over time. Yeah. In, you know, in multiple ways. For sure. And it's not just a, they didn't just turn into the old guys that are like, Nope, this is what I think I'm digging my heels in and you can't tell me anything. Yeah. You know, like they, they learned and changed along the way. They changed the, 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 they're not going to stick, stick with, you know, party all night and part of every day. <laughs> rock and roll, rock and roll all night and part of every day, I think is the, that's yeah. the proper lyric. Um, as a side note, you know, Black Abbey, the um, brewing company here in town? Right, yeah, yeah. So the owner uh, is a huge Neil fan and uh, there's a, a brew out, a high gravity brew out. Um, it's got uh, lyrics on it and uh, "Rest in Peace, Professor" written on it. And oh wow, I didn't know that. I I have met that guy before. My my girlfriend works in the beer industry. Oh okay. Um, and so I I have met that, and and I know like he's a huge, um, like he's a big Iron Maiden fan. Okay. <laughs> um. Uh, but no, I I didn't know that they had 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 done that with their beer though. That's really cool. I have to check it out. I have I haven't uh, I haven't tried it yet, but um, well, man, yeah, it, we we got to be careful. We've been at this for we've been chatting for a while, and if we go down the the rush <laughs> rabbit hole, um, that could be dangerous. Uh, of course, when I said that the the rabbit hole, I, I immediately thought of Presto. So that I can <laughs> I see your nerdiness. And I think you went up to me. I think you went up to me with that I one. Just did. <laughs> um, but man. I, it, it, it's been it's been good to get to know you more uh, in this situation. I wish we could have done it in person. Uh, we we might have been able to um, maybe a few weeks ago, or um, I don't know. Uh, but the times I don't, we, I don't know how well. I mean, how well would it sound talking through a mask? Yeah, probably about the same right now. I've got a, <laughs> with my pop screen, um, but I, I've really enjoyed listening to you play uh and just chatting and getting to know you more i zach and i appreciate your support of the podcast your interest in the podcast it's people like you excuse me it's people like you that really kind of keep us on our toes and keep us uh motivated uh i equate the podcast to being like an indie band where we go on tour, we break even, and then we are almost about ready to hang it up. And then people go, hey, when are you putting out a new record? Damn it. Got to put out a new record <laughs> and keep doing it. Uh, but we really enjoy it, you know? And it's, again, it's, it's, it's support from, from people like you and great players. And it's like, man, this is, this is so cool. It's all full circle for, for me. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was really, I was really, uh, excited to do this and uh yeah you guys i mean you guys are one of my favorite podcasts out there and uh 
I mean, I think it's a combination of you guys ask really good questions and have good conversations and have a good, you know, diverse uh, assortment of guests. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I think that I think the when I first thought of the name, I thought, well, this is going to hopefully kind of set a standard. And then over time, early on, especially within the first year, there were certain guests that I look back on. And I've even mentioned to them that you helped me set the standard for what I wanted, you know, based on their just conversations and, and their experiences that I'm like, I, I want to hear more of this, you know, and, and I just felt, I feel like it, it's something that a lot of people can relate to, uh, in one way or another, you know, there's only so many Dave Weckles we can interview. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is really cool, but, um, I can't, I can't always relate to some of those guys, uh, in the same way. Uh, I right. Love it, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I remember when I saw you guys post that he was going to be on the podcast. Like I thought that was really awesome because, you know, you've kind of reached, I mean, at that point, like you've reached a certain level of, you know, the drum world. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I also, whenever you asked me to be on, I thought, how in the world am I on the same podcast that Dave Weckl was on? (laughs) Like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense, but, uh, no, well, it, you know. it it does, man. It totally does. And uh, this is this has been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate your time, Alan. Well, thanks, man. I was glad to do it. Cool. Well, I'm going to let you go. So uh, you probably got a huge, busy uh, weekend ahead of of gigs and and all this, <laughs> <laughs> like we all do. Um, but no, I appreciate appreciate you, and um, I'll be in touch for sure. Great. Thank you. Okay. See you, man. See you. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Alan Jones. This episode went a little long. I'll keep this ending brief, but Alan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your support of the podcast. We very much appreciate that. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Rudy Royston. He's a New York jazz drummer, uh, played with Bill Frizzell, Dave Douglas, and a bunch of others. But uh, recently he's been doing his own thing, composing, band leading. Uh, doing solo records. Um, He actually has a new solo record. This sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to digging into it. 23 tracks of nothing but drums. Uh, Zach describes it as uh, little drum poems divided into four themes. This is just really incredible. So look forward to that. Rudy Royston is our guest next week with Zach Albetta hosting. But for now, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay positive, and hope to see you around real soon. Bye-bye.